All right, team, we're going to jump back in for the uh, practical part of the afternoon. Sorry, we've been skipping around a little. Um, it was. I thought this was all practical. Much more helpful. Well, okay, we'll go with that. <clears throat> um, Ken's so good at presenting that part, he needs to present that part. So we kicked him out. It's all good. Um, so um, I'm going to uh, flip back to page 18 in your manual. Yeah, we're, we're, regr we're regressing. Hey, no groans from the crowd. Decline. <clears throat> so on page um, 18, I hope it talks about types of transitional pastorates. It does. Okay. Well, here's where um, some of the historic confusion has come um, regarding this interim transitional stuff what people are used to, what people call different things, uh, all the things that, that happen there. Um, so uh, we want to look just for a minute at the types of transitional ministry. The first is what we have historically thought of in the interim category as pulpit supply. And some people make the direct equation between transitional ministry and pulpit supply. Really, that's what it is. And you throw in a few other duties. And I mean, I can't tell you how many... Um, guys who are looking at retirement saying, I'm really looking forward to retirement. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm going to do some interim pastor stuff. And, you know, it's not, you preach, you moderate a couple session meetings. It's all that. So we, there's a discussion that follows that. Um, but again, that's typically how we've seen this thing. Um, and it's, it's been interesting over time, uh, as we've done the trainings and talked about this, there's usually one of three responses to uh, folks who come and, and participate in what we're doing. One is, if that's what transitional ministry is, I'm out. Like, I, I just wanted to cruise and hang out with some people until hopefully Jesus came, and then we're done. Uh, the second group of people are people who said, you know, I've thought about uh, transitional ministry, but... Um, I didn't know there was any roadmap for it. Um, you know, I knew there was more than just pulpit supply and um, moderating a session, but I didn't have any way to uh, think about it. And as you tell me about this, you know, I'm encouraged. I think we had to do it. Then there are people who come and say, I really wasn't considering pulpit ministry at all, but if this is what it is, I'm in. Like, I'm so excited about doing this and about having some way to think about it and process it and all that. So you're probably in one of those three categories, and uh, Bill Senyard will be taking names on categories. But again, we've historically equated the idea of transitional ministry, or as we call it, interim ministry, to pulpit supply. And, and let me say, by the way, this section, the types of transitional ministry, again, page 18, this is about managing expectations. And this, uh, I find, is, is maybe the single biggest potential roadblock in transitional ministry. The reason is this. The person coming, the pastor coming, has certain expectations about what transitional ministry is. The congregation has certain expectations, but nobody talks about what they are. Um, and so, yeah, come on board, and we'll just kind of figure this thing out as we go. My experience is that seldom works out well. Um, because expectations are not lining up. And that's why uh, you'll find in your um, appendix, uh, well, not your, not your thing, the, the one at the end of the book, um, a sample contract. 
And, and what we talk about in transitional ministries is contracts have to be clearly defined. The transitional pastor has to say, this is what I'm committed to doing. The church has to say, this is what I'm committed to do. And I keep telling them, if it isn't on paper, you haven't managed that expectation well. And so contracts between transitional pastors and sessions are so, so, so important. And we'll talk about that. But, but that's why, because there are all these different kinds, that's why managing the expectations up front becomes so, so important. Okay? So you may have somebody thinking of, uh, well, pulpit slides, all I do, I preach, go home, isn't life wonderful? Uh, the second might be what we'd call a general shepherd. So, yeah, I'm going to go do some general pastor stuff, whatever general pastor stuff is. And, you know, I'll visit a few people and hang out. And if somebody gets sick, I'll go to the hospital. And so they just see it as, you know, I call, I call it skimming over the top, right? Just kind of let's, let's do the surface stuff. Let's do the, what everybody expects a pastor to do stuff and kind of skim over the top of what happens. Or somebody may see themselves as an administrator, um, so I'm my expectation. I'm, my gifts are in administration as a transitional pastor. So I'm going to go in and do the administrative stuff. I'm not somebody else can preach. Somebody else could do the other things, but um, this is what I'm going to do. Or consultant diagnostician. Uh, I'm I'm coming in to help you understand how messed up you are, and then I'm going to tell you how not to be messed up. And that's really my primary role. So I'm not going to visit hospitals. I'm not going to hold Aunt Matilda's hand. I'm not going to, you know, be visiting everybody in their homes. This is the role that I play. And this is, by the way, what a transitional pastor does. You can already see, well, there's all kinds of things. Or a change agent. Again, I'm... The presbytery sent me to tell you how messed up you are, and I'm here to change everything about you. Um, and that's my role. So it's not really pastoral. It's not really administrative. It's not that I'm a general. It's not that I'm even concerned about pulpit supply. I'm the one to be coming, diagnosing, consulting, or I'm a crisis interventionist. Everybody in the presbytery knows how screwed up you are. So because we talk about it all the time at meetings, um, um, and so. Because they're in crisis, um, I'm going to be the one to come and solve that particular crisis. Well, of course, the problem is, if you're focused on that particular crisis, you miss lots of other roles of what the transitional pastor is to do. Or some combination of the above. So you can see how expectations get out of hand quickly. Um, if everybody has different expectations of what you do as a transitional pastor, and you have certain expectations, you don't get very far into the transitional process until somebody's going, uh-oh, this was just a bad idea. And so that's why it's all about trying to manage those expectations up front. Okay, questions about that? And you may, just, may need to ask yourself, which of these are you better at? Um, because if, if you have strong gifts in one of these, then you better manage that contractually. Manage that as you have the conversation with the church. Um, so, okay. Uh, and we gave you, everybody got a copy of the restoration, assessing your restoration potential? Okay, if you want to keep yourself up for a few nights, do that tonight. Um, I don't know. Yes? We're good? Yeah, where, where are they? Up here? Yeah. Oh. Is this them? Mm -hmm. 
my lovely Secretary Vienna. Okay. And so asking question, what are you best at fulfilling? What does the church you serve most need? So again, managing expectations personal with church ones, okay? Hey Bob, how much weight do you put on churches saying, well, we need number four and we need number one? I mean, how much weight do you put on what they say they need? Um, what they say they need, in my experience, has very little basis in reality. Um, so that's why what, what we're trying to get to in the Alleghenies, um, again, by no means do we have it figured out, but what we're trying to get to is um, to be able to have the church go in, yeah, have the presbytery go in, do a missional posture survey, do a life cycle with them, do a SWOT analysis with them, do a grace analysis with them, however much we can get. I mean, obviously everybody's time is limited. But those self-assessment tools, they can do and get back to us. Then it gives us a chance to say, oh, what you really need is this. Uh, now, again, their self-assessment may not be entirely accurate, but it's better than what we're doing now, which is pin the tail on the donkey, yep. right? Okay. Um, Bob, just a quick question. So, so, the, um, so SWATs are going to become the Presbyterian's uh, role? No, no, no. Well, this is just a preliminary missional posture, just trying to help them start think through self-assessment and how would that impact the, who might be the best person to go there. Mm -hmm. So the SWAT thing is still, we'll get to that, still very much the center of what we're doing here. We have produced three videos, so I'm going to see if this one works. Mm -hmm. Oh, there it goes. Whether most churches realize it or not, I believe every church that loses a pastor, no matter what reason, needs to go through a healing process, whether it's grieving because of uh, the good aspects of that relationship or grieving and healing because of things that were not so good. I was drawn to transitional ministry uh, because we believe that it's a unique time in church's lifespan to address issues of church health and vitality, in particular with relation to the Great Commission. Uh, churches naturally suspend their, their rhythms and uh, rituals and are more open to foundational questions about their mission and values. And that's a conversation that I love to have. It's at the heart of my sense of call. As our last pastor left, uh, we have an old line church like many. It's uh, got a history going back 200 years. And we were pretty comfortable with who we were, and you know, we had a lot of programs. We were doing a lot of things, and we thought we were doing pretty well. And I, as we started into the process of looking for a new pastor, our original plan was to do, as we'd always done in the past, is maybe bring in somebody for a short period of time. Our session seemed quite comfortable with that, and as we are getting ready to go into the process, uh, Presbytery came in to just to talk to us a little bit about where we were going, and they talked something about uh, a transitional pastor, which we'd never heard of. And there was, I think, some resistance to that initially. Again, and we were thought we were doing just fine. We were comfortable <laughs> with who we were. Sophomore. We were just going to go do as we'd always done. They uh, came back to us and, and said there's going to be a training session uh, on transitional pastors. And, they suggested we might want to send a couple of people to it. So two of our elders went to that session. And when they came back, they said, we need to do this. And so we started down that path, and it was probably one of the best decisions we've made. First of all, it took the pressure off us of filling the pulpit, 
but more importantly, it gave us time to sit back and our transitional pastor was taking us through a process to look at who we were, and not just from what we thought we were, but what the community thought about us. And uh, we found we're very comfortable inside our own walls, but we're not doing a very good job of reaching beyond those walls. The biggest surprise, I think, is, is he brought in a revitalization team, and Bob Stoffer came in and sat down with us. We got a group of people on a Saturday. Uh, we've had probably well over 100 people that were a cross-section of our church. He took us through this process of talking about uh, churches and, uh, and the whole revitalization process. And the thing I most remember is at the end, he described a curve, of a uh, bell-shaped curve, if you will, where uh, churches go through a cycle of incline, and then they reach a peak called recline, and then they often go into a period of decline. What I thought was interesting, at the end of that, he gave us all, we were all sitting around different tables, and this is a cross-section of people, old line, younger people, uh, people new to the church. And he gave us little dots, and he said, go up there and put on the dot where you think you are. And I think we scared ourselves, because there was the best anybody said we were in, in recline, and most of us had starting to go over the top into decline, and it was a real eye-opener for us. That plus the fact that as our transitioner uh, pastor took us through the process of looking at who we were and what we wanted to be basically when we grew up, I think it opened some doors for us to start taking a realistic uh, evaluation of us, which has been extremely helpful in uh, us as a uh, pastoral search committee because we now have a good feeling of who we are as, as a church, our characteristics, our strengths and our weaknesses, and more importantly, the kind of person that we really need for our church to take us in the direction that we need to go in the future, which is gonna be oriented outside the walls of our church, not inside it. That for a church that's an old line uh, with a, a lot of older people in it is, is a whole new thing for us. And uh, his sort of setting the stage for us and showing the need for and how we go about that, I think has made it more comfortable for our congregation to deal with. Why should a church get a transitional pastor? Uh, what benefit is it to them? Um, first off, I believe who you get is just as important as getting someone for it. Because uh, I've talked to churches that simply look at a transitional pastor as a warm body while they're waiting to get what they call the real pastor. And the transitional pastor isn't trained to help the church process uh, not only healing for the church, but also help them clarify and rethink what God may want to do that might be different than what they've been doing. If the pastor that uh, they get as for transition is not trained, then I don't know how much good it'll do for them. But if the person is trained, I believe it can immeasurably help them rethink what God wants to do with in and through their church at that time in their community. And I believe that's a significant question that churches need to ask themselves. Well, you might have heard some themes in there that we've talked a little bit about. <clears throat> Let's go to page 20 and start into the... Um, Bob, some. Just a quick question. Yes. Can I get this for our president? No. I tried for, for yes, for a small book fund fee for just in fact, just make a check out to Bob Stoffer. <laughs> By the way, let me do that. 
Um, yes, of course. We can if you if you can get it off my computer, you can have it. So, and the and the people who know me laugh even louder. Yeah. Bob Cummings, I hear your laughter. By the way, let me add one thing to what Ken did here that I think has been a powerful thing, just because I don't want to erase it. This is, he talked about this area being such a critical area. One of the things I talk about, and I, my, he probably does too at different places, he said something profound, oh, sorry, something profound really happens in this area. He said, what happens up here as people begin to go over recline and into the backside of the life cycle is this comment. Um, once you begin down this side of the life cycle, um, the concern for reaching the lost gets replaced by a concern for losing the reached. Mm. I love that. So over here, the concern is for reaching the lost. Once you get over here, it becomes about us. And we become much more concerned about losing the reached. Um, and, and you can feel that shift. I, I mean, I, you know, again, one of the things we're hopeful for in this process is not that we're splitting the atom here, but that we have language to talk about things. And that goes back to the comment about other organizations doing transitional stuff. We tie this to language that is, you know, common to us. So, again, concern for reaching the lost gets replaced by concern for losing the reached. So, um, so let's turn to page 20, I hope, maybe. Yes, okay. So we talked about the who of the transitional ministry triangle, okay? Um, just to kind of cement this in, uh, to look at the presbytery variable here. Um, what role can the can the presbytery play in this process? Hello? Oh. Uh, we talked a little bit about the opportunity to go in ahead of a transitional pastor, um, which I think is becoming more and more important as we, as we begin to think about it and process it. Um, and so uh, there is a strong role to to play on the part of the Presbyterians. Again, why we're doing uh, the trainings that we're doing so that we can begin to um, you know, give churches a good, uh, good number of people to be able to choose from as they do this. Um, so now we're going to look at it a little bit from the how side. <clears throat> so, back to, so we know where we are. <laughs> well, sort of know where we are. Phase one, self-assessment. You have a pretty good grip on that. There's lots of tools that are available and we can help you with all those. Uh, establishing vision, a vision for the future, a strategy for the vision, that's what we're going to begin to talk about here. And then phase three, the aligning perception and all that helps there. Um, um, so we talked a little bit about the self-assessment stuff before. Um, but if you turn over to page 22, maybe? It's the self-assessment side? Yep. yep. Okay. Um, again, uh, one of the one of the primary takeaways, after having watched this for a number of years now and been a part of thinking about this process, is um, the key is the elders. If it's going to have lasting change, if it's going to sink deeply into the life of the church, you have to have buy-in from the elders and the session. Um, or else you go, it all goes, right? And so 
what I what I tend to say is that I, I think probably a transitional pastor ought to spend about 70% of his time or her time with the elders. And that sounds a little crazy, but um, uh, I'm finding more and more that at least over 50% of your time really investing the elders, investing in them one-on-one, investing in them personally, investing in their lives, investing in their calling, investing in their training, investing in their mission, investing in their vision, investing in their leadership skills. Um, because by and large, again, maybe all of you live out the exceptions, but by and large, most churches have very little clue about the biblical role of an elder. And very few churches... Elders don't have a clue about a biblical view of an elder. And churches have even, you know, they talk about what's, uh, well, there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew or something like that. You know, the further down the line you go, it gets fuzzier and fuzzier. Um, and people come out of independent backgrounds. They come out of charismatic back. They come out of all kinds of backgrounds with their view of leadership and eldership. And so um, this whole area of a biblical view of eldership, um, it's really important. You can go to page 60 in the appendix. It'll talk about some of this. But um, here's a great picture. Um, actually, I took this picture in Israel um, where the, the bus got stopped for obvious reasons. And this guy didn't care a lick, right? He was, he was very focused on the sheep, but I thought it was interesting that he was standing in the middle of them. So we've talked about leadership from the front. The early first picture we showed was leadership from behind. There's also leadership in the middle of them. And so this is my picture for elders. Your, your life is lived in the middle of them. And they're pooping all around you, but you're in the middle of them. You're in life with them. Not just ministry, you're in life with them. And um, so I just thought that was a great picture of that. I don't know who that guy is and doesn't know I took the picture. Uh, and we talked about the, um, you know, the transitional stuff. Um, this is to love Christ as church and to be his instrument and bring health to his flock, prepare her to receive her new pastor shepherd. Okay. Um, so let me see something here. So sorry, we're still learning how to do this, but so let's go to page eighteen. Um, well, I know, but I'm I'm going to eighteen first because I don't know where that is. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll come across it eventually. But on page eighteen, um, this biblical view of eldership, um, and so there are lots of things you can pour into the life of your elders. Um, but I don't think anything more important than just taking through biblical accounts of what an elder is and does. So we've given you um, 10, I think, uh, 10 scriptures. Um, that's good for 10 session meetings uh, or other meetings. Uh, there ought to be, we're on page 22. 22. Is that what it is? Yeah, 22. Okay, sorry. I don't know what I said. Um, 22. So for, ignore that for a minute. Um, well, yeah. I'm, hey, I didn't say we were organized. I, so, so, again, a, a moment of confession. Uh, the manual was finished Thursday. The PowerPoint was finished Friday. And this is the first time I've seen some of it. So we'll get it together eventually. Just well. not today. So sorry about the flipping around, but um, 
And so uh, really taking the time to take uh, the leadership of the church through biblical, the biblical context of uh, leading as an elder. So there's 10, a lot of uh, transitional pastors are using that as 10 devotional sessions for their sessions to begin to think about that process. Um, and then on page 23, you see uh, some of the questions. Have you ever pastored a church where the elders really functioned as biblical elders? If so, what was that like? If not, why not? Um, so you see some of the questions just to be asked. Then if you turn over to page 24, I hope, uh, there's a biblical view of church leadership. Um, and the, there are nine other scriptures here um, that can be used either in conjunction with the ones before or separately um, to doing that. Um, and there are some resources in your appendix um, that we'll talk about in a minute, but just so you know, they're back there. Um, page 25, I mean, this is self-explanatory, you have it. So uh, we saw the goal of a transitional pastor being what we talked about before, right? Um, and then, um, what does health look like in the context of a transitional pastor? Um, just try to use another little acrostic to make the point as best we can. The first is healing, right? We talked about the uh, significance of change and loss and grief and anger, conflict, all those kind of things. So the role of healing becomes a very important part of the work of the transitional pastor. E is encouragement. Um, and again, uh, if you're like me, your tendency is to attack weaknesses just because it's how I'm wired. Um, but we've got to be encouragers. We've got to be able to pull them along through the process of encouragement. Um, a is accountability, just the, uh, the ability to really hold people accountable for things they're going to do. So in Ken's process of life cycles, one of the things I find with uh, vision teams and the process they go through, if a, if a church can manage to get to the place where they've uh, begun to formulate a vision, you know, who are we trying to reach, where's God called us to go, vision begins to come in sight, do you know where they lose it? In goals. There's no time frame set to anything. And because there's no time frame set to it, nobody gets it. And nobody wants to say anything, because then you're being like mean, right? Um, so this is, this is one way to think about the visioning process. Uh, Question. How do you set time frames if the new, new pastor's not on board yet? Well, let me, let me try to explain real quick. So another way to look at life cycle is churches on the incline are driven by four things. The first is purpose. Um, this guy, Rick Warren, did some writing about this. I don't know if it ever took off or not, but... Um, Word in the street is he got some response, right? Purpose-driven church, purpose-driven life. And purpose is answering what question in, in this context, in the Great Commission context? Why? Who are we trying to reach? And so answering that question gives us focus, right? And I'll talk about this in more in just a minute, but in, I want you to see it in this context. The next... Um, is objectives. Can't spell objectives. And objectives answers the question, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? 
Um, so what's the strategy? How, as we implement vision, what's the strategy? <clears throat> then the next thing is where I'm suggesting a lot of folks get lost. Goals answers the question of when. When will we do it? And holding people accountable for timelines, holding people accountable for the things that need to be done. Um, and so when you... Um, so when you're asking the question of when, it's, it's strategy with time frames. Particular times when people need to get done. So that's the accountability piece. It's holding people accountable for the process. Then up here, you begin to find structure. And structure answers the question, who's going to do it? In fact, who might we need to take from somewhere else so that we can do this better? Or what might somebody need to stop doing so they can do this, like, <gasps> stop doing, <gasps> you, can, you can feel the gasp in the room, right? <clears throat> and then as the life cycle goes up, up here is structure, but a different kind of structure. This is um, living for ourselves. When a church moves from an outward focus to an inward focus. Again, concern for reaching the lost gets replaced by losing the reached. Okay? And, and so this is just language to, to be able to help identify what's going on in the life of your church. If you're coming down the other side of the life cycle, the first thing you'll hear as decline begins is nostalgia. What's nostalgia sound like? The old days are better. I remember when good old Pastor Bob was here. I remember when we had 2,000 people in the greeting ministry. You know. So it always points to a past time and a past reference. So this is future. This is present. And as soon as you begin to hear past language, then you've moved strongly into nostalgia. Right? Then comes... Questioning. What does questioning sound like? Why don't we have 2,000 kids in Sunday <laughs> Okay. Or, or why are we doing this thing? Or those stupid elders, why are they doing that thing? Why is the bathroom blue instead of orange? Um, and so they begin to question. Now, why would people start to question? Well, in the absence of purpose, and in the absence even of structure... Jeremiah had a phrase for this. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So questioning allows them to become, in the absence of the things that should be driving and leading them, what they're doing. Then comes polarization. What's polarization sound like? Those people. It's my team against your team. It's my family against your family. It's this group of people against this group of people. And then they go to a congregation meeting and fight about, you know, how many parking spaces they're actually going to have. And somebody wins and somebody loses. God help us, really, that this is what church has become. And, and Ken raised the point about the uh, millennials, you know, and the issue of leadership and the glass ceiling that they hit. Uh, here's another place that they hit. So the young folks are sitting around 
Uh, and many of the millennials, those are the millennial experts, so I won't speak for them, but they want to make a difference. They, they might not know how or what that looks like or even what that looks like in the Christian context, but they want to make a difference. And they sit around and watch the church fighting about this crap. And you know what they say? Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm going to go somewhere where I can make a difference, where, where there's an opportunity for me to really engage my culture or engage the people that I'm around. So, after polarization then, eventually comes dropout. So, what I mean by accountability in this context is here. I see churches that somehow manage to get started by God's grace, and then they get to the place where they form objectives, like here's what we're going to do, but nobody says when, or you know how it's going to get done, or even who's going to do it. And so over time, the energy just begins to dissipate. So some initial stuff may have started to happen. Some initial people start to get interested. This is not in your notes. This is in the head of a crazy man. Um, might start to get interested, but when there's not accountability to the process, then things will ultimately go south. It just dissipates. The energy dissipates and goes away, and you can feel it. Things move from order to disorder. Sure, of course. Yep. Remember, life cycle is a one-way street. So, okay. Um, love, trust, and hope. Um, uh, if you look in the appendix on pages 66 and 90, there's some things in there. You don't have to do that right now, but is there a note at the bottom of your page to do that? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. Woohoo! Hey, we're making progress here now. So, again, just another way of looking at the transitional process and things you have to hold on to as you uh, do the things that you're called to do. Um, there are several studies in Nehemiah um, which are very powerful tools. Um, it's very easy to spend a year on the study of your session in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, because once they understand the principles there, then they really understand principles. Um, and we're not going to do all of the Nehemiah study today, but just um, for, for another day maybe. Uh, so, under Nehemiah, um, the leader who cares or cries is part of being a transitional pastor. The leader who sees reality um, and so we talked about dysfunction and sin in the camp and all of those kind of things, who sees the reality of what's happening and can translate that reality into, in a way that uh, allows the people of the church to see what's going on. The leader who names reality. It's not enough just to see it. You have to call it something so they can see it. Um, you have to be specific and point out um, what, what God is doing there. Okay? Then the leader who, who responds to reality. So once you're helping them see this kind of thing, the question then is, well, how will we respond to what we have cared about, what we've cried about, seen, named, and respond to? And then the leader who models godliness in the process. And then I mentioned before here the, the role of um, leading the session through repentance, uh, personal repentance, corporate repentance. Um, again, for me, in my experience, that's been the foundational element for real and lasting change. Um, until they repent of where it is they've been and what they've done and not done, um, the, the moving forward uh, becomes... Um, 
hard. So your role is as a leader to lead them to the Word of God where they can have fresh eyes to see what God is doing in the middle of them. Okay, let's look at... Oh, so we have... Uh, Ken has a resource called the Ideal Vitalization Pastor. Um, we'll have to give you his... Um, the website. Um, I don't think it is in there. We'll get that. And by the way, before I forget... Um, When you get home and can't figure out what that idiot was talking about, let me put my information up here. Here's Kim Pretty's website here. Uh, that's not the resource one. I know what that one is. Thank you. It's WordPress info something. That's, so that's my contact information. Um, so let's look. So the ideal vitalization pastor, again, is more of this, uh, the same of the how section. Um, provides positive attitude for vitalization. Assurance the process will work. Accountability for time frames and quality, which we just talked about. Serves as a change catalyst. Captain, maintaining unity and momentum. Champion for revitalization. They possess vision, drive, energy, experience, training, support, capacity, health, people skills. So there's whole seminars all in there, but pretty soon your eyes will glaze over. Is that Stauffer.ra? Yes, Stauffer.ra at gmail.com. Sorry. And my number is the same forward and backwards, so you can start either end. And so I, I decided early on if I you know, ever become dyslexic, I can know my name and my phone number. So at least I can call myself and ask me who I am. So. The last couple of slides, what page were they on? They're not. They're not? Okay. No, they're not. They're not on there. So we're going to go back to the book now, uh, page 27. Those are, those are just rantings of a lunatic. Okay. 12 motivation models of the church. And uh, again, this is another kind of little diagnostic tool or, or way to ask yourself who they are. Um, and so let's, let's do this for a little. What does a self-preservation driven church look like? They have a large endowment. Okay. And they, um, and they preserve that puppy. <laughs> even, if, even if there's 20 people left. Or five. <laughs> or five, yeah. No, no risk taking. Okay. Very low, low risk faith. We talked about that in the thing before. Good. What else? No decisions. Okay. Or whatever decisions they make, it's for their self-preservation. It's not for ministry. It's not for uh, mission. It's for what, whatever we decide, the most important thing is that we preserve ourselves. They're going to be very mm -hmm. pragmatic towards that goal. Very pragmatic. Yep, for sure. Internally focused. Internally focused? Absolutely. Well, you get the idea, right? What about a tradition-driven church? <laughs> okay, we've always done it that way. The ghost of Henrietta Mayer, <laughs> or, or the ghost of somebody. Yeah, <laughs> right. For sure. Even if the entire neighborhood around me has changed, we're doing it this way. Okay. Or no matter 
you know, you can talk about reaching, here's the context I see it in a lot. You can talk all you want about reaching people, but we're not going to change what we're doing. It's the only way. It's the only way, of course. This is our way, right? That's right. Yeah. Moses pulled it off. Good for us. Yeah. Right. Good. Okay. How about a seeker driven church? Okay. Can be. Okay. What? Okay. Maybe probably not a lot of discipleship. In the, uh, and again, these are big picture kinds of things, but in the trace, Grace and truth model, where do they usually lie? Grace. High grace, high grace, and high grace. Right? Okay. Good. Okay. How about the Christ- Christian consumer-driven model? Programs. Programs. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. You know who wins in church life? He or she who has the most programs. Mm. <laughs> and the problem is that most of the church people, since they're old like us, uh, most of the church people grew up in a model where church was an attractional activity. And so it wasn't a question of whether people would go to church. It was a question of where they went to church and on what basis did they decide where to go to church. Who had the program for them? And so, and so I'm a consumer. So I shop around and see who, I don't care about theology or, you know, I, I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm driven. And so most of us have grown up in a consumer-driven, attractional culture and model. And it is still almost impossible to get churches to think, rather than being attractional, we are now called to be missional. Because the attractional model has sailed. Again, I know you can do things and people will come. And I also know God made a donkey talk in the Old Testament. But it's not the normal activity, right? And so the reason many churches are struggling is because they're still trying to function in an attractional model. So even as I'm doing seminars, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask questions. I say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think in a radius around your church. And I want you to think, what are some ways that you could serve your community well in order to share the gospel, uh, to build relationships and to share the gospel, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And what's their first response? Well, we could do this program in here, and it's, it's all what I'm going to do in here, and it will be so good that all of those people out there will want to come in here. Have a movie night. Yeah, yeah. So, so my question always is, well, isn't that what you've been doing? Well, yeah, sort of. How's that going for you? Like, show me all your new converts. Yes? I've encountered the idea that uh, we don't want to bother launching a program because they won't come anyway, so we just won't bother. Well, they got half of it right. (laughs) Yeah, they won't come, for sure. So, Isn't there a still within so much of our Christian culture an assumption that our neighbors are Christians? One way or another. Yes. If you're out west where we are, or northeast, yeah. no, they, don't, they no longer assume that the person next door is a Christian. In fact, they assume that 90% of people are not. But they still will try an attractional model yeah. to get people to come. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I have a great phrase for that 
It's called the clue phone is ringing and it's for you. <laughs> like, or I just say, seriously, real, like really? You think, really? I mean, really? So one of the things we want to encourage people to do, um, I have a little model that I use. Um, sorry, I'm turning my back here. What I try to get churches to do to, to think out of that box is just a very simple model. Sorry, my R's are bad. The language of the church to the culture today is service. Right? Yeah. How are we going to serve them well? Because that's the language that the culture will understand. They will understand that we are somehow leaving our place to serve them well. Okay? So let's, let's assume my rantings are correct for a moment. If that's true, what I see a lot of churches doing is if they get the service part, what they tend to do is I'll hear statements all the time like this. Well, we're serving in 21 places in our community. And I say, there's only six people in the church. Like, how are you doing that? And what they're saying is what I call hit and run ministry. They gather in the church. They muster up all the nerve they can get. They venture out into the community somewhere at a food bank or a clothing shelter or a fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, out there. They go out and do that. Then they run back into the church and they wait for people to come. And they can't figure out why people won't come. And I can't figure out why they think that people would come, right? So you just went out and did something. Now, my perspective on that is that most people who do that in the life of the church may be very well-intentioned. And they see it as a good thing, and it probably is a good thing in, in some ways. <clears throat> but the real reason they're doing it is to make them feel better about themselves. Mm. I mean, there may be some altruistic stuff in there. I, I don't deny that. But the question is, serving to what end? Like, where is your service going? Those people don't know you any better than when you came before. You've been helpful. So, what I say to churches is, don't just serve. Stop serving in 21 places, but serve in places where you can build relationships. Now, how are you going to build relationships through your service? How's that going to happen? Consistency. You have to go back again and again and again. When I first met my wife, I asked her two days into our dating relationship if she would marry me. That didn't go all that well. Um, why? Because she didn't know me, right? It takes a long time to build relationships. And so I say to churches over and over again, if you're serving in a way that you can't build relationships, stop it! You know the Bob Newhart film. Stop it. Don't do that. Because it's really just... You have to ask yourself, to what end? It's wasted time, energy, resources, finances... People, you know, and again, people feel like, well, I've served because I've done this thing. So to build relationships, you have to go to the same place over and over and over and over again, which means you've got to identify a place that God has called you to go. Please hear that very carefully. Not where you just pick something out of a hat and go, but where God, because vision is never about um, creativity. Vision is always about discernment. Vision isn't about what creative places you can think of to go. 
you know, and then tell God that's where we're going. You might audibly be able to hear him laugh, right? He doesn't care about your vision. I've had a hard time accepting that because I have so many great ones. Um, but he doesn't care about our vision. He cares about his vision. He's already on mission in your community. And the question is, are we going on mission with him or are we just going to watch him from a distance do what he does? So don't serve anywhere you can't build relationships because it is out of relationships that we share the gospel. Who is an unbeliever going to hear the gospel from well? Somebody they know, right? The, the research now says it takes about 16 times for an unbeliever to hear the gospel before they begin to understand what it means. 16 times. That's how far the culture has moved from the church. Yeah, used to be much lower than that. But as time goes on, it gets greater and greater. And so the problem is, let's work this backwards. Let's, let's just make up something completely wild. We want people to come to Christ. Right? I know, crazy talk, Great Commission stuff, I know. But if we wanted to do that, how would we do that in our culture? Well, we're going to have to build relationships with unbelievers. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to serve somewhere well so that we can build relationships with them. So do not serve unless you can build relationships. Again, this is service, obviously. What's building relationships? Outreach. I call it outreach. To what end? So you just know more people? No. Outreach has to turn into evangelism. The spoken word, the gospel, the written word. Um, and so that's going to come through this building of relationships. So when churches say to me, we're doing 10 things in the community, I say, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. And they look at me like, like you all look at me sometimes when I'm talking about that, right? That I, that I, but if it's not, if one thing doesn't lead to the other, then it's just activity. You're just serving to serve, which has, again, I'm not demeaning, has some altruistic, but to what end? And if you're building relationships, to what end? It's always to the end of sharing the gospel. And so that's this Christian consumer-driven thing and this competition for programs um, gets so difficult. Yes? Can I just throw a little question in here? If it's easy. I've countered this a couple of times in ministry. Um, Last church with the vision team. So go out. So they say, okay, we'll go out to the preschool that's in our, the, to the parents in our preschool. Mm -hmm. Just not be on the walls. Could you comment on that? Well, so first of all, I, I, I would always say, because I've heard this, this may surprise you, but I've heard this before. Um, <clears throat> I always say, if God is bringing unbelievers into your building, then the clue phone is ringing and it's for you. Mm -hmm. Like, how It doesn't make sense to me <laughs> that God would be saying, hey, here's a hundred or so people who don't know anything about Christ, and they're walking in and out of your building, and you're not serving them well. And you're not building relationships with them, and you're not sharing the gospel. And sometimes, this may surprise you, but I'm not God, but sometimes uh, I think God says, well, you're not even paying attention to the people I'm sending you. Why would I send you more? And so what context is God all, God's already on mission in your community? What context does that look like? Where is he at work? Then get in on that. And that's why I talk about vision is never about 
creativity. It's not about you coming up with some great plan. Again, this may, this may make you feel bad, but God does not give a rip about your plan. Because he's already on mission. He's already doing something. What he wants you to do is join him on mission. That's what makes it a co-mission. Otherwise, it's just God on mission. So, anyway. Okay, yes? So, I just see connecting the dots between program ideas and also serving. So, our church is empty all the three hours on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. All week long. Mm-hmm. It's empty. And I'm racking my brain about, okay, how can we open the doors to be a blessing to the community, to bring people into the facility, use the facility for something, for daycare, for parents' night out, for blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. But get them in the doors. Here, so, okay, why don't you, you all respond to that. How, how do you, Uncle Bob? And you're asking them to come in the doors rather than you going out the doors to go to them. But going out the doors as well. No, no, I get that. I get that. Yeah. But here's here's the here's the thing. We even as pastors, I think sometimes we don't get the gulf that separates the church mm-hmm. from the culture. And so we live. We're reaching out to a neighborhood in the church that I'm in now. Long story. God's doing amazing things, unbelievable things, but. The key to God unlocking the doors for us was this idea of we know even inviting them in is such a cultural divide. Um, it's about 50-50 African-American, Caucasian, some Hispanic. Um, so understanding the gulf between the church and the culture, when they enter our churches, they're entering a different world and hearing a different language. And it's not a comfortable place to be. So we keep assuming it's a comfortable place to be because it's a comfortable place for us. But it is not a comfortable place for them. So the divide of getting them in the door continues to be greater and greater, harder and harder, and yet that's what we continue to try doing. Rather than what would it look like for us to go live in their community and to be a part of them and to signal that it's not about us and our place and our stuff and our whatever. It's about what God has called us to do out there. So for me, that cultural divide is so great and so distinct that it's not impossible. Again, God made a donkey talk, right? He rose from the dead. All kinds of things can happen. Um, But as a natural way of doing things, it will be about us serving well and building relationships, going to them to where they are, and not, again, being careful not to say, hey, here's what I think these folks need, but to find out what they need. And to really get to know them well enough to ask questions. I was part of a group of people in uh, Youngstown. And uh, the, a community development group spent $2 million on urban gardens. And you know what they forgot to do? Ask the community if they wanted urban gardens. <laughs> After $2 million, a year later, they're all just sitting there, rotten. They didn't even go get what was in the garden. Because nobody asked them what their real needs were. So don't imagine needs and and go serve somewhere that somehow you think works or makes you feel better it's in the context of building relationships that you will feel how to figure out how to serve well so yeah Bob. i'll give you a quick example <clears throat> so in the church i used to serve we're getting far right away. across the street from the ymca the ymca brand new facility big windows everybody could see the church across the street <laughs> nobody came 
we went and we used to teach a spinning class. So every six o'clock every morning, three mornings a week, we went to a spinning class. And four and five and six people started to come across the street mm -hmm. because we went to them first. Mm -hmm. They got to know us at the spinning class and would come to church. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to come to church otherwise. Well, th and think about it the context this way. Let's imagine we get to where they share the gospel. And they hear the gospel and they come to Christ. Like, whoa, we're into really rich stuff here, right? Where are they going to go to church? In the place where they have relationships. They're not going to go to somewhere they don't know with people they don't know. Now, if your motivation in starting all of this is we got to get more people in church, stop. You've missed the point. You've missed the Great Commission. You've missed biblical principles. You just stop. Save yourself the heartache, the frustration. But, but going as kingdom people and building relationships and sharing the gospel um, is, a, is a way to have that happen. So... That helps. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest things we have <clears throat> as a church is Food Link. And we have, I mean, our parking lot is, our parking lot is absolutely filled with people, hundreds of people, and things like that. Um, and through that, pretty consistently, we've been able as a church family to build some relationships. You get to see people every single time. And of course, at Food Link, you're not supposed to talk about the gospel. Not supposed to, but we've got a lot of good, great church members that will kind of take people aside and start talking to them, or witnessing to them. Um, they also come inside the building for lunchtime. Um, that, and at that point, I think we can share the gospel because that's not connected to food. Um, so, but of how to go about doing that and really kind of the importance of doing that rather than just kind of let's go feed people and which is kind of a PCUSA type. To of, what end? You know, and, and all. And it's not, you know, there's not a whole lot of emphasis, a lot of people understanding that it's, you know, it's about Jesus, it's about the cross, it's about the gospel. But, um, I mean, I can see the value in it somewhat, of, and that exactly what you're talking about. But there's also, it's also still, you know, I don't know, there's an aspect to it that's just not going out to where the people are, um, meeting them where they're at, still expecting them to come where we are. And so as a transitional pastor, you walk around going, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And if the answer isn't somewhere in that continuum, then stop doing that. Right? Great commission. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What is it that God is calling us? To, how is God calling us to live out the great commission in our community? That's You just keep going back there, keep going back there, keep going back there, keep going back there. And if it's not accomplishing either serving well in order to build relationships or building relationships to share the gospel, then either think, how can we rework this in order to make this possible, or let's stop doing that and do something where we can do this. So, okay, okay? Mm -hmm. That had nothing to do with any of this, but that's all right. So, uh-oh. Uh-oh. I died. Going to sleep, Mark? I don't know. I just hope I don't have to fix it. Or we could be here. Well, Woo! Alright. So anyway, I'll just go down through these because I didn't mean to get on that 
it's but but it is the heart of the transitional process. Yes. Something just occurred to me um, in what you were saying about serving in order to build relationships or be able to share the gospel. Um, something that I think a lot about is that um, the gospel isn't just for unbelievers, but we need to be continually rooting ourselves and our people in the gospel. And so you can also look at it from the dimension of discipleship. When we serve together, we're building relationships mm -hmm. with each other, and then we're continuing to grow in the gospel ourselves. This is Great Commission Discipleship, yes. And I'll tell you, my experience is, when churches begin to do this, you definitely pray that unbelievers come to know Jesus. But the difference it makes in the people out there who are serving and building relationships is revolutionary. Once they get, wow, I, I can build a relationship with some people in our, or at a place in our community. And so, you know, I, we do... Um, the heart of all this is prayer walking, and so we don't need to get off on, on that tangent. But, um, you know, have churches kind of close their eyes. I do this at the seminar. And think, what are, what are three places around your church where you could serve well in order to build relationships, in order to share the gospel? And you can feel the energy in the room, like, starting to rise as they start to think about places where they could actually go and make a difference and build relationships. And then, you know, then it's a matter of, well, um, you know, we have ten places we could do that. Well, you probably need to pick one. Like, if you have, like, 500 people, maybe go for two. Um, but that's the kind of focus that you need. What churches lack most is focus. Um, because they don't know what they're supposed to be focusing on. I mean, they sort of do. Like, if you said that to most churchgoers, they go, oh, I'm sure it's something in the Bible. Like, I oh, don't know exactly what it is, but I know there's something in there that I ought to be focusing on. Bob, one of the things our church has struggled with, we're a small to a little larger than small suburban church. And we have two of these ministries. One is south into Pontiac, and one is north into Flint which are not our culture, not our geography, too far away, they're good ministries, we hand out Bibles, we pray with people, there's been conversions, but then the challenge is mm. none of those particular outreaches Absolutely. will ever grow, they're not going to come in our doors. And so the more those are prevalent, it seems to block out these type of ministries where we're ministering to the person across the street. That's I, been one of the biggest challenges. So I, I, I have two words for you, Steve. Two words. You can write it down, but you can probably remember them. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, yes, I'm sure there's good things happening, and there's smatterings of response and all of that, but you said it. They're not a culture. They're not... And it's not they have to be your culture, but they have to be at a place where you can build relationships, which means every person in your congregation ought to be able to touch that group of people once a week, like all the time, like they're sick of you. And, and we did this in a, doesn't matter, don't want to get too far afield, uh, as part of a church plant, we adopted a trailer park. And after a while, what did they keep saying to us? Why do you guys keep showing up? You keep coming back and you help us do these things, but why do you do that? Uh, let me see. Uh, Jesus? Um, so in our third new members class as a church plant, we had 35 new members. 34 were brand new Christians from the trailer park. And so we had them stand up front. Our whole service that day was them standing up front saying, I can't believe you came to us. And if you hadn't come to us, and really came to love us and to build relationships, we would never have known Jesus. 
And I said, well, that may or may not be true, but let's not get theological here. We'll, we'll take that for what it's worth. Um, and, and then the interesting thing was people who were not a part of the church, people of the church who were not a part of us going to that group of people and ministering in that community for whatever reason, said, came up to me afterward at the church, and, and you know what they said? I'm so glad we're doing this. Like, we who, Ace? I'm there, you know, I was about to take a Jesus-sized bat to a couple of people, right? Um, but but that's, then, they, then it became theirs, and they became part. But we were there three times a week, all the time, doing all kinds of things with things they asked us to do, not things we made up. So anyway, okay, yes, last one. But he doesn't have to stop it. Perhaps what he could do is hand it off to somebody in that. Hand it to another church? Of course, yeah, sure. There, may, there can be all kinds of things you, you, you can do. But again, it's got to be so reachable and touchable that, um, and again, many of our churches, people come from a wide variety of areas, say, well, God has put this church here. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you know, reaching our community? So, okay, we'll, we'll move on because I don't even have any idea what we're talking about anymore. Image driven. Consumer driven. Yeah, consumer-driven. Program-driven. Okay, what does a, uh, well, we know what a pastor-driven church looks like, right? Um, which obviously presents a problem for the transitional person coming in. Um, yeah, yep. Um, it could be either positive or negative, but um, comfort-driven church, power play-driven church, conservative values-driven church. If there's not a flag in the sanctuary, God help us all. Culture-driven church. Or when you take it out, yeah, take it out very slowly. <laughs> anyway, you know, I'm, I'm I'm really glad that sometimes I'm able to stop. That is a great strategy. I'm I'm really happy I can stop myself from saying what I'm thinking. Scripture based out, but anyway, the point being, as a transitional pastor, there could be all of these things, some of these things, all these things at play. So just having an awareness that you're moving into a church with a culture. You're moving into a church that's done some stuff out ahead of you. Image-driven, could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. What would an image-driven... Highland Park Press. Press when I was there. Huh? Highland Park Press when I was in... Highland Park Press. Okay, we are the prestigious church in town. Well, the Christian there... Cathedral was that way. Yep. Yeah, sure. I, so I heard this in my community, too. I heard uh, uh, we used to be the professional church. Yeah. Doctors and lawyers attended. No. We are first prez. Yeah, first prez. <laughs> All right. Nine million. Other we'll get some rips. All right. Hey, good for you. Throw a party. I don't know. Whatever you want. Yes. Does that look like? So what does it look like? Come on. You, you, got, you guys can help me here. I'm going to get time. You do things to pat yourself on the back you know, because of any actual substantive. So your driving, your driving issue is preserving the image of the church. Or at least your secondary. Or your first, yes. yes. You or You build relationships with people who build the image. Right. Yes. If you're a professional church, you're not going to go to the trailer park. Right. Yes and yes. And no one was confusing us with a professional church. So, Okay. So you get the importance of that, though, as you move in in a transitional context. Okay, Ken did the missional thing, life cycles. Steve Kiris, uh, church, uh, um, 
SWOT analysis, grace analysis. Pause on grace analysis for a second. It's the first I've seen that. So, in a is it in your book? Yes, yeah. yeah, it's in the book. Oh, okay. Um, Got it. You're, as a transitional pastor, I have no idea where SWOT we're analysis. Does the grace analysis come into play when you have your small team who's analyzing the, the data from the? Uh, and you start asking them the questions. It can. Um, the, the only thing. The only thing I would say is. You, you've got to be careful not to have too much information because um, you can go sideways with, with too much information. Um, but, but this is a, I mean, it's a great tool. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to use, come in as a transitional pastor and use everything. You know, pick what works in your context and in your situation. Okay? Uh, we'll skip NCD for today. Uh, okay, so... Um, let's take just a minute. Why don't you get back in your little group, talk about, okay, what have we processed so far um, before your eyes start rolling back in your head? Um, so just talk about the, you know, ahas, oh nos, takeaways, action steps, things you've heard that will help you move forward or think about transitional ministry. So why don't we do that for, uh, how about till 25 after? All right, so... Um, in the absence of knowing where I am, let's turn to page 38. So we talked about um, some of the other parts. We'll talk a little bit about vision, a little bit about the search process, and you won't be able to take any more, and I won't be able to take any more of me. So, page 38. Um, yeah, we'll go with that. What's it look like? What's it look, what's it look like for you? Yeah, there we go. That's the one we want. Wow. Yeah. This wall come together one day. Hope it's, hope it's in my lifetime. <laughs> All right, so we're looking um, at the five phases of vitalization. Oh, I always click it just to see what happens next. Um, so uh, you can see the uh, ladder rung effect on page 38. And I want to suggest that this really is the transitional process. Um, you may have thought we did it before, but this really is kind of the order of things in thinking through uh, any good church health process. Um, uh, not just transitional, but any church health process. So um, <clears throat> let's look at the five phases of vitalization. The first phase is aligning perception. And again, we talked about the self-assessment, and here we're talking a lot about self-perception, um, self-discovery, uh, assessment and analysis. And so the key questions in the um, aligning perception phase is, what will we discover about ourselves, and what will we do in light of what we discover? In other words, how does who we are inform who we might be called to reach? And again, I know this makes a lot of sense. And, and we'll, we'll hit some of the parts of this and people in education and business and people, like this is what we do in business. Like we actually have a reason to do what we do and we don't do everything, but we focus on a couple, like, uh, yeah, they're pretty much principles wherever you go. Okay, so phase one, aligning perception um, and the, um, the parts that go with that. Uh, we talked about the SWOT analysis. Um, one of the things, uh, about the SWOT analysis, uh, there's several people in this room that have done it. If you want to speak into it, um, it's fine. I think it does a couple of things. One is, again, depending on the size of your church, I recommend you do maybe 30 people, 35 people, something like that. 
Um, and you're, it's really simple. You write, there's a, a letter actually in your appendix that you can write to set this up with the people who you're doing it with. And basically you're asking, what are the strengths of X Church? And by strengths, I don't mean we have great potlucks and we're friendly to each other. So maybe and maybe, but that has no bearing on anything. So, so we're asking about strengths related to our ability to reach out. Strengths related to us moving missionally rather than attractionally. What are the kinds of things that we have and, and what are the resources and people resources we have that might allow us to do mission well, to reach out into our community well? Secondly, um, what are our weaknesses? What, what are things that would keep us from reaching out into our community well? And that's typically a fairly long list. What are the opportunities for us to reach out? What might be some places we could go? What are opportunities that God may have right in front of us that as we pray, he might lead us to? Um, again, you may not have heard anybody say this, but vision is not about creativity. Vision is about discernment. God will give you the place he calls you to go. I promise you, if you ask him, that's a prayer he really wants to answer. Um, and so... <clears throat> What are the things that might keep up, or what are the opportunities that might allow us to do that? And then threats, what are the things that might stop us from doing this? What are the things internally and externally that might keep us from being on mission in the way that God has called us to live out the Great Commission? And you'll get lots of interesting responses, obviously. And then my suggestion is always then ask whoever it is, um, and again, these should be you know, people who have some sense of the whole church, not just maybe somebody who's been there for 10 weeks. Um, but uh, then ask them, well, how can I pray for you? Um, and make it personal and get to know them a little bit. And you're the transitional person. So, uh, And then always make a point, in my judgment, of writing that prayer request down. And then the next time you see them say, hey, I've been praying for whatever it is they ask you to pray for. Um, to build that relationship and build that connection with them. Um, <clears throat> again, lots of self-assessment tools that you can use. But So that's the aligning perception part. Aligning vision. Can I ask you a quick question here because I'm looking at the letter? Yes. Um, it's coming from the transitional pastor. Correct. Uh, so it's the transitional pastor does that? Yes. And it does all these? Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Bob, just a clarification, is this uh, done in a group study where you're explaining all of this on the board, or is this one-on-one? One-on-one. All one-on-one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bob, Jamie, speak to it. Anything? One-on-one's appropriate. There's different ways to do one-on-one, but um, getting an individual aside gives them a freedom to answer the questions mm -hmm. without feeling intimidated by the group, mm -hmm. rather than the group controlling the process. So you get, you get clear information, mm -hmm. most of which is already known, uh, by almost everybody, but it's in a black and white form that they now have to deal with. Mm -hmm. I actually asked permission to record it. I got, I got recordings, and it helped me go back, and I built an Excel spreadsheet with every interview, and I have, I have quotes from every interview. And then we used those quotes, went to the report writing team, and they're just, they're just reading the very words, basically, mm. that I heard. Okay, and then try and summarize. So if you want to see a great report, I just read Jamie's last week, whatever, I don't know. Great report, very succinct to the point. If you want to see what a report ought to look like, Jamie would be delighted to send that to you. I would love to say, Bob, that had I said strengths for our ministry of reaching people outside, 
that is a completely different yeah. approach because uh, that's not in the training or the notes. It was a blanket. What is our strengths? Yeah. Same. Same with me. But I wish I'd known that. Well, here's the here's the problem. Here's the problem. Experience. Again, they'll go to. Exactly. We we really love each other. Yeah. We're a kind church. Yeah. We have great potlucks. Um, you know, stuff that has no bearing on anything, as far as I can tell. So I'm always thinking about the missional context. Like, what are what are our strengths in terms of what resources do we have to reach out well? Nate. So when you do these, do they have something that they're thinking about already before you meet with them, or are you starting with a blank page? No, no. You t so okay. So the letter actually gives it. Thanks. Good clarification. Yeah. So you're you're giving them a warning. You're, you're giving them the outline of what it is you're going to ask them. So they come in well-prepared. Well, <laughs> sometimes they come in well-prepared, and um, but it's not a pop quiz. It's you went, you're out in front of that. Okay? Aligning vision. Um, once we know who we are, when we're going to be growing up, who are we going to be? Uh, again, the question, this bugger will keep coming back at you. How does God want to express himself through this church in this community at this time? Um, fascinating question. Um, but... The help in the process, um, again, um, people have fed back to us. This is where the GO1 thing really gave it some pop, you know, gave it some um, momentum in moving forward because it describes a process of, of moving forward. Um, but with that or without it, it's the same question. Um, you know, what, how would you respond to that question? And then what, what did God mean by that? <clears throat> Um, what adjustments do we need to make as we go along? Um, you know, I, I, I always tell churches, if you think you have to figure this all out before you go anywhere, you're going to wait a long, long, long time. So my advice always is start with who you have and go. And let God do what he's going to do. And we're going to talk about some different people groups, how that works. But um, n never wait for consensus. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit speaks, then go with who you have. And when you go with who you have, God shows up. It's an amazing thing. Okay? Uh, aligning strategy. <clears throat> so this, this side of the life cycle over here, we begin to put in place purpose. Who are we trying to reach? What will that look like? When will it happen? Who will have to do it? Um, begin to answer the strategic questions invo <clears throat> involved in moving forward. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how will we develop those who we're trying to reach once we've made contact? That's a really important question. Because um, <laughs> I've had, <laughs> we had a, a couple of situations recently, uh, the church that I'm at has been reaching out to this community. Some people have started to come, and then everybody went, now what are we supposed to do with them? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, we're a little behind the curve on that, I guess, aren't we? Um, but what a great question to have to try to solve. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I said, well, my first response is we need to turn them around to go back into their neighborhood as quickly as we can. Because that's what the Great Commission does. Go, teach, baptize. Then my authority and presence will be with you. Go, teach, send those ones back out. That's the, that's the Great Commission circle um, that we have. So... Plus, they're the ones that know everybody, right? Okay. <clears throat> Phase four, and we'll, we'll revisit this in a different way in just a minute. 
How are we going to function? How do we support the strategy? What are the criteria for decision-making and resource allocation? How does leadership function? And this goes back, you remember when we first started this morning? Intimately, right? Very clearly. You remember our uh, steps in the, in, the, in the case for a transitional pastor? Um, you know, forming the vision team. They begin to ask the question, who has God called us to reach? Begin to put together a strategy, hand it to session. Session hands it back to an implementation team. So all of that is a part of aligning both the strategy and the structure around the Great Commission question. Um, and then what are we going to need in order to make that happen? Um, what is God going to uh, need to provide in order for us to do that well? And then phase five, aligning people. Um, so we have X number of people resources. How can they best be used for the mission that God has given us to do? Now that's a, like for us, it's like, okay, that makes sense. For most churches, that's a mind-bending operation. A, that we might quit doing something. Um, you know, that's why um, I, we, I talk a lot about my, when I do the seminar, I talk about nominating committees. In my opinion, nominating committees are from hell. Um, and, and the reason is they're dragging people through slots in order to get to lunch, basically. Um, and so what if we responded to, uh, if there aren't people to do something, we just stop doing it? Maybe that's what God's saying. And you go, <gasps> you know, you can hear the air, like my clothes go, because the air is getting sucked out of the room as they ponder that. Um, so aligning people. Now, the, the reality is, as a transitional pastor, you're probably not going to get through all five of these. Okay? And that's not even your goal. Uh, your goal, you'll probably get um, most of the way through three and pull in parts of four and five. But um, there will be other parts that the new leader should do, ought to do, that you hand off to them. Okay, um, and so oh, well that that prompts one other quick question. So people will say, well, what if the, um, you know, what if the person we're interviewing doesn't think that's our calling? Uh, then that's not the person to come. There you go. Pastors will come and go as you have experienced, um, but the vision God has given to your church it may change, it may take on different dynamics, all those kind of things. But God's given it to your church. Uh, he's given it to you. Um, so. Hey, if you're going to keep backing me up, you're going to be here a long time, buddy. <laughs> no, go ahead, Dan. Um, you mentioned there's parts of four and five. Yeah. Transitional pastor. Can you, can you sure. Yeah. So um, you're, you're probably going to get fairly well into the aligning strategy part, mm -hmm. right? As we, as we work on this, as the vision team does its work, all that kind of stuff. Um, aligning structure means uh, the, question, the question on the board is not how will every ministry get engaged, in the mission of the church. Uh, the question is not whether they will do it, it's how they will do it. Um, because again, how, how most churches function, oh. Here's what typical church ministry looks like. Well, not exactly, but sort of the idea. So you have all of these ministries in the life of the church. So each of these circles is represented by a ministry of the church, depending on the size of the church, right? So it may be youth ministry or children's ministry or women's ministry or men's ministry or pick a ministry, whatever ministries you got. The problem in most churches is that the ministries function like silos. They are 
completely independent of one another, um, with very little connection or contact with any of the others, because there's no need to, um, who have continued to do the same thing with the same people, or you call these committees, like, I'm a big fan of committees, uh, that just keep perpetuating what they're doing, and when you ask them why they're doing what they're doing, or to what end are they doing it, there's no good response, right? So what vision does, or what the mission does, is pull all of these parts together. So if this is the mission of the church, the question is, how is the youth ministry? How is the women's ministry? How is the men's ministry? How is the choir? How is the pick whatever ministry? How are they connected to the mission? So in our context, as we reached out to the trailer park, um, the question wasn't, um, are, is the senior high ministry going to reach out to the senior highs of the trailer park? It was, how are they going to do that? Like, what does that look like? How, what can we do as a ministry of the church in senior... I'm making one up, but it doesn't matter what it is. How, we, how are we as the youth ministry at X church going to have an impact on the senior high youth kids in the trailer park? So, we've... God has identified where we've been called to go. So it doesn't mean you have to say, stop doing all this stuff. What it does mean is this, and this is what the Great Commission Matrix is for. Um, you'll see that in your notes. The question is, how do they engage there, and what does that look like? And not only is it, it's, 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 you notice this is all directed toward the community and the mission, but it also means that if the senior highs are taking a boating trip, then... Every one of these kids better be invited or you're going to deal with me, right? So whatever these ministries are doing, they're inviting people. Hopefully it's not at the church. Hopefully it's wherever, homes or mission places. So this is what pulls that alignment in. So you're at, probably in your time of transition, you're not going to get all that alignment in place. I mean, you may get fairly far down the road, but... Yeah, so you start, so, so the aligning people and the aligning structure to the mission, that's the big question. How are we aligned with the mission, uh, the vision that God has given to us? Um, yes? How do you find the mentality of our kids and their kids? Uh, they're God's kids? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, again, my experience is tr trying to rationalize that is a losing battle. Pointing everybody to Scripture is the winning battle. L listen, what unifies us here is the Word of God. So let's see what God has to say about that. Um, and so keep that what's out front. Um, not do you like them or don't you like them. I don't care if you like them or like it, don't like them. I, I really don't. Does God love them? Well, uh, yeah, I think so. so. So trying to keep that as the driving thing. And this is what God has given us to do. Let's be clear. We didn't make this up. I might have mentioned vision is never... About creativity. Thank you. It's, it's always about discernment. discernment. Really, two people got that out of all that time? <laughs> we voted her the spokesperson. Oh, she's spokesperson. Oh, okay. That makes sense. The answer was stop, our it. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Yeah, that's the other question. You make a hard line between mission and vision. How do you talk about those two things? Because we're aligning vision. How does mission kind of fit in? All it's, the same, it's the same thing. Okay. I think words are interchangeable. Okay. It's whatever it is that God has given to you. You can call it vision. You can call it mission. 
Okay. You can call it George. You can call it whatever you want. But yeah, it's that. It's the same. It's the same thing. All right. Does that help? So okay. So uh, the next pages. Oh wait, I got a thing. Let's see what's next. Ooh, nothing's next. Wait a minute. Wait, I'm going to read this. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay, so phase two, uh, vitalization. Um, the question, who are we going to be? How does God want to express himself? What did God mean by that? Um, again, you need uh, devotional material, preaching material. Here it is. The great promise, the great commandment, the great commission, the great witness, the great mission, the great multiplication. There. Done with that. Um, and so it's, it's um, you know, clarifying that. The work of the vision team, you all get that, right? So then you need to go back and do that. The mold that shapes us. Um, I could spend a lot of times in the four disciplines of a Great Commission church. Um, this, as we do this, and as we do the GO1 seminar, um, there's two, two realities in a healthy church. One is spiritual renewal. The other is strategic initiative. And those need to work hand in hand. Again, often, in my experiences, churches will lean one way or the other, uh, feel more comfortable on one side or the other. But in order to be a healthy church, you have to have spiritual renewal combined with a strategic initiative. Um, you can say, well, we're going to sit and pray about that all day, but if you don't actually have a plan for moving forward, praying's a good thing. I'm not saying praying's a bad thing, but... Or, if you're saying, listen, we're going to figure out a plan and then ask God to bless it, um, you're equally in trouble. Um, so the four disciplines of a Great Commission church, um, basic Bible, preemptive prayer, um, meaning how do we pray ahead of what God is doing for the vision. Um, missional multiplication. If what you're doing is not multiplying, then you are dying. It's a, it's a biologic principle, right? If it's not growing, it's dying. Um, and uh, which one did I skip? A preemptive prayer, mission basic Bible. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Well, when I think of it, I'll get back to you. <clears throat> and then the model that shows us, again, uh, in terms of teaching, leading. By the way, four disciplines of a great commission. Oh, boy, that really is bugging the life out of me now. <laughs> I don't think that's in here. Oh, well. Okay. Um, all of these are great teaching tools, preaching tools, small group tools. I preached on them too, and I can't remember the four. That's really going to irritate me. I'm, it's my yeah, senior, I'm it, I'm my senior moment. Let's see if I can get it here. Fellowship. Fellowship. Sounds like strategic. No, don't do that. I'm never going to get it if you keep doing that. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, I will sit straight up in bed, and I'll have a very firm grip of what I'll think of it before I leave. Yeah, I'll get an email around to everybody. Okay, and then um, page 42, laying the groundwork for building a great commission matrix. Um, here you see the vision team responsibilities. Um, so a vision team ought to be made up of six or seven people. 
uh, two of which ought to be elders. Um, and that keeps the communication flowing between the elders and the vision team um, so that that's an ongoing process. Uh, you as the transitional pastor ought to be a part of it. Um, and so uh, their job is to discern God's Great Commission vision, uh, develop the commission vision and strategy, direct the church through the Great Commission matrix process, which I'll talk about in a minute, and determining evaluation and accountability for the results. Um, who are the people you want on that team? Discerning, visionary, spiritually mature, respected through the congregation. And then we, um, the little di I bet I have a thing on this. You have to remember that I have this thing, even though I can't exactly see it. Um, what we say is that every vision team member ought to have seven or eight people who are praying for them. And like taking very seriously the fact that, not like, yeah, I'll pray for you. No, like really praying for these people every day. So what are the benefits of having the, these prayer partners? What does that do? Okay, communication lines are open, right? So as you're asking people to pray for you, what's happening? The vision, and again, you can't share anything confidential, but as, as you're asking them to pray about things happening in the vision team, and here's some things we're thinking of. Yeah, of course. It's communication, it's buy-in, so the vision starts to expand even before you have a vision to expand. Okay, what else happens? Element of spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. This is a spiritual practice, talking about this is cemented in um, spiritual realities. I always say um, my, my standard line in uh, talking about the vision teams is um, if you want to be attacked spiritually, then come and join our vision team. Mm -hmm. It's for you. Because it's almost inevitable mm -hmm. that will happen. <clears throat> and the reason it will happen is that I am firmly convinced in most churches, since we don't need God to show up anyway, um, Satan is perfectly comfortable letting us do what it is we do. Mm -hmm. You want to have meetings? Fine. You want to have committee me? Fine. You want to do it? Fine. You want to cycle your old blah, blah, blah? All of it? Fine. Just let's just do it. But the minute, really, the minute we get serious about moving so outside of our walls for the kingdom, it will come. Something will happen. It is a universal truth and principle. And so we need to pray for spiritual protection uh, for these folks. I have seen the most bizarre things happen you would ever imagine. And I won't tell the stories because then nobody will ever do this. Um, but the truth is, this is a spiritual, there's a deep spiritual dynamic at work here. And when you get serious about reaching out as a church, um, you're not going to be alone in that process. God's, um, Satan's going to come after you. And I mean that with everything in me. We um, need people praying for us, too. We need people praying for our people. And we need people outside of the church praying for us. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you need to have your own prayer partners because, again, you're moving into a situation where you're challenging a church to do something different. You're, you're out in front of this thing. Um, so, yes? Cost commitment. Cost commitment. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's another dynamic at work here. Um, I had an experience not too long ago. I was with a vision team. They were kind of getting to the end of their process and uh, they were really they knew God was calling them to one or two places but they just couldn't wrap their head around where God was calling them to <clears throat> and so they they committed um, they did a, a solid week of fasting the whole team fasted and they prayer walked the two communities that they were doing 
I mean, they were doing everything I could think of that they ought to be doing. They were doing prayerscaping. Uh, you know what prayerscaping is? Fascinating little exercise um, where, where you can sit in some place in a community, or anywhere really, and you simply pray, God, show me what you see. It is unbelievable. I got, look at the hair standing up on my arm. The things God does is frightening. So I had an experience not too long ago. We were prescaping in our community. Somebody walked by, and, and I'm like, I'm not your, how would I describe this? Yeah, I, I mean, I am kind of a charismatic in some ways, but, but in the sense that it's not like this is my everyday experience, let me put it that way. Happens fairly frequently, not every day. And, and so um, somebody walked by me and God said, follow her. And I said, I don't think so. You know, like, yeah, there's so much wrong with that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, like, there's everything wrong here, God. Um, and and so, so, you know, I've, I followed her down the street, and she went about um, maybe about a block. She sensed that I was following her, and... Um, and no... And, and so, um, she was, yeah, she's about a, maybe a block ahead of me, and she falls flat on her face on the street, like face first on the street. Thanks. And I just, like, I froze, like, <sighs> I don't know what you're doing here, God, but this is, like, weird city. And, and so I, I got up to her, and I said, are you okay? And she said, God told you to follow me, didn't he? And I said, Nope. <laughs> Nothing rings a bell. <laughs> I'm just walking in the neighborhood. I, so, uh, so I said, yes. She said, and he told me that I need what you have. Wow. Oh, praise the Lord. Hmm. And I'm thinking, I've got 10 bucks. Uh, yeah. Want a Coke? <laughs> yeah. Do you drink uh, Coke Zero, Pepsi Zero? Um, I said, I don't have much but what I do have is Jesus. And for the next 10 minutes, we talked. And um, she made a commitment to Christ. Like, right? No spiritual background, no anything. Um, so that's prayerscaping. Um, well, it's an example of prayerscaping. Doesn't happen like every day. Uh, but, 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 it's, but the minute you pray to see what God sees, things start to happen. So, anyway, back to my story. Original point. Um, the original point is that um, the vision team was struggling with these two two places, and so one of the prayer partners, uh, one of the uh, vision team members, had asked a prayer partner, "We're really struggling, but where God wants you to go." And um, it was an 88 year old woman, I think, um, saint, and uh, she said, "You know, I've been praying about." She didn't know what the two places were, and she said, "I think I know what it is." And he said, well, what do you think it is? And it was one of these two neighborhoods. And he went back to the group and said, this is what, I can't remember her name, but this is what this woman, who's my prayer partner, said that she believed God was telling her. And they went, all right, we're going. So it was a prayer partner who ultimately, by hearing God, determined where that group went. And it was exactly right. So, um, so the power prayer teams, the power prayer in this whole process. And again, we um, haven't had a chance to talk a lot about it. This is, this is normally a day and a half or two days that we've 
we're squishing, obviously. Um, so, um, uh, phase three, vitalization, aligning. What's that? Oh, okay. Hey, that's in my book. Um, phase three. Uh, this is uh, high SR is um, spiritual renewal, SI strategic initiative, um, and so again, what you find is if you put these on a continuum, uh, there are churches in each of these quadrants, right? So you can have high spiritual renewal and low strategic initiative. What does that lead to? Nice little inward church. Okay, so so but you're basically not going to get a lot of ministry out of that, right? Okay, so called ministry minimization. Okay, low strategic initiative, low spiritual renewal. You're living on the margins, right? Um, high spiritual renewal, high strategic initiative, ministry multiplication. This is where ministry really happens. Um, and God begins to do amazing thing. And low strategic renewal, high strategic initiative is just uh, what Ken refers to as ministry manipulation. It's somebody making up a plan and not really asking God what they think about it. So you get how that works? Um, again, as people, we're like this, right? Um, we, have, we have default positions. And churches have default positions. But if you turn to the next page... You'll see that the Great Commission matrix is is uh, in the ministry multiplication quadrant. Um, it has both high strategic re spiritual renewal, high strategic initiative. Now, the way this works, if you look on page 45, because it's bigger, and I just got new glasses, and I can see the big one. Um, the ministry one, ministry two, ministry three, that's these. It's the ministries of the church, the various ministries, whatever they represent. Okay? Then on the left-hand side, you have um, uh, outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. Okay? And the way this works is, let's say ministry one is pick a topic. What did I say before? Senior high youth ministry. All right. Senior high youth ministry for whatever, because I can't think of anything else right now. So what the, the way this works is under um, ministry, ministry one, which is the youth ministry, under discipleship, you're asking the question, over the course of the next year, what are three strategies that we want our senior highs uh, to take on in the area of discipleship? In other words, it might be a particular study of a book of the Bible. It might be a, um, a book that they study together. What do we want them to learn about growing in their own personal faith in Christ, their own personal discipleship? Then the next one down, evangelism. <clears throat> Strategy one, strategy two, strategy. what are the three things we want our senior highs to learn over the course of this next year in evangelism? It might be uh, a video series on how to share your faith. It might be understanding cultural context. What do uh, Bill's group think? Um, it might be a um, practicing doing evangelism with one another or in the church. So this is the spoken evangelism where... Oh, I lost my build, serve relationship, share the gospel. This is the share the gospel part where you're teaching them how to do evangelism so that as they interact with the people that we're on mission to interact with, when they ask, why are you here? They have a way to, to share that. And then outreach is how are they building relationships with the people of the community that the church is being called to reach. Um, and so it may be we're going to have 
a picnic in the trailer park for the senior high kids, and then all go swimming together. I make up. These are the three things during the course of the year. The power of this <coughs> is, is several fold. One is that as a leadership team, you can look at all of the ministries of the church and what their strategic initiatives are for a whole year on one sheet of paper. And then you begin to hold them accountable, right, for how they do that. Second benefit is, so let's say uh, you're, you're working on senior high boys. I'm just making stuff up. Well, the men's ministry may say, you know, we've been thinking about, there's some things we think we could do to uh, be talking about biblical manhood in the Bible. And so how, why don't we come in and be one of the strategic arms for their discipleship? Perfect. That's a great way. It's a great thing for them to do as men and leaders. Great thing for the boys to receive as young men. So you begin to see interplay happening between all of the ministries. Um, and then the other thing that <clears throat> becomes powerful about it is uh, typically what a church will choose to do is at the end of November, I'm making stuff up a little bit, timetable is yours, but <clears throat> let's say the end of November, all of the ministry leaders meet again. This is a ministry leader activity. All the ministry leaders meet, and they go through their strategies for the year. First of all, that ministries would actually have a strategy about anything is almost stunning, right? But that they would have it in important areas like discipleship, evangelism, and outreach are very important. So in November, um, all the ministry leaders sit down and say, how did we do over the course of the year in the things that we said we were setting out to do? Well, some things we did really well, some things, nah, that went really south. Um, so what do we need to pick up on? <clears throat> so there's a good time to evaluate ministry again, Mind-bending, I know, that we would actually do this, but we hold people accountable, we evaluate ministry, <clears throat> and then about the middle of January, they meet again to develop next year's strategies. And so that creates that cycle of um, God giving uh, ministry focus to the, all the ministries, and then evaluate, new ministry focus, evaluate, ministry focus, half sheet of paper. The elders have the opportunity to look at this and say, wow, wow, this, you know, we're not sure this is working right, and where do we need to interject ourselves? How do we help with the um, ministry uh, matrix and the marginalized process? So all of that, um, <clears throat> see the arrows coming down to the, the goal of all that is seeking the lost and seeking true worshipers. Um, so out of John 4, out of Luke 19, um, Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So I'm guessing that's what he wants us to do. Just saying, if that's his purpose... Maybe it ought to be ours. Um, so in answer to the questions like how do we bridge some of these gaps, keep it biblical. You know, let them, let them fight with Scripture, not fight with you. Um, <clears throat> so again, contact is the strategic priority, um, how we move out and do that. So um, you get that? What my, my son is the, um, one of the youth leaders on staff at Hope in Memphis. Um, <clears throat> little place they got going on them. And so what he's done with this is he said, uh, we're, we're going to chart our kids from 6th grade through 12th grade. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So he, he put this out, another one. And they've developed, what do we want them to understand in 6th grade? What do we want them to understand in 7th grade? What do we want them to And so over the course of their time in Hope Youth Ministry, here's the outcome um, and the strategic initiative. So um, there's lots of ways you can play with this. and make. But this is the place where, uh, remember we talked about uh, step four, um, lining structure with this. This is how you align structure. Well, it's a way to align structure. You might have a better way. 
awesome, go for it. But this is, when we, when we first started talking about this, you know, I thought, you know, every once in a while, close the door because he might hear me. You know, every once in a while, I think Ken goes off the rails. Because um, he's like thinking way too much. And since he's way smarter than all of us, um, this is one of the things I thought, yeah, kind of cool, but, mm, mm, you know, I'll, I'll throw it out there in the seminar. Um, but I saw this at play um, in a very significant way in a church because I was at their meeting where they were doing the yearly evaluation. It was so, they were praying over each other's ministries. They were praying over the strategic elements of the ministry. They were praying about how this could all connect with the mission and vision of the church. It was, and I went, all right, you're a moron. Just <laughs> do what it needs. So, yes? The first time it's made sense to me, and I've heard it several times. Well, <laughs> yeah, so you need somebody on your level. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Amen, brother. I, I, say, I say this to Ken all the time. It's like, you're, you're way too smart for your good and our good. So, so you understand how, how it works? I mean, it's such a simple, it's like, you know, it's, it's, my, my great phrase is, we're not splitting the atom here, you know, but somehow when you see it and it lines up like that, you go, well, how in the world did I not think of that? But... <clears throat> anyway. Quick uh, comment. Hmm? As a transitional pastor, then, and this is a revelation for me, you're not busting up existing structures. You're just taking the existing structures and, and aligning them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not saying, get rid of children's ministry, get rid of this. Well, you can try that. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, I can already tell you how it went. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I'm not. So the, so the goal, uh, again, um, the the goal is to take what exists yeah. and give it focus. That's really all the whole. That's that's the whole point. Um, and so, no, you don't need to try and break those things up. It's just aligning them so that they're fitting into this alignment structure. Make sense? So you have Sunday schools, and you have, if you have small group ministries, if you have a hybrid of both, you just you, you you align these with this. Use them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Let me see what's over here. So you get that, right? Mm -hmm. And here's Ken's Vital 180. It's not about how do we minister to our congregation, but how do we minister through our congregation, and I would put to the people God has called us to serve. But it's not my book, so. But see the significant difference there? That's a, that's a big difference in the way most congregations function. Okay. Um, Ken co-wrote a book called The Leadership Ladder, <clears throat> Developing Missional Leaders in the Church. This is an unbelievably good tool to use with the session in their training process. Um, there's a workbook. There's a, there's, I thought he had one. There's a regular book and then a workbook for the leader. But the interesting uh, part is, <clears throat> for me, lots of interesting parts. It's all interesting. But one of the interesting things, if you look on page 46, Let's see if I have a thing. There's the ladder. Yeah. There we go. I can't even see that bugger. So, um, one of the things that's been interesting to me when Ken talks about this is he said, as we're doing leadership development, if we're doing leadership development, which let's be clear there, most of us aren't, but <clears throat> if we're doing uh, leadership development, most of the time, as we're talking to elders, we start talking to them on rung three, mobilizing ministry. Mm -hmm. 
we start talking to them about what does it look like for us to do this and that and strategy and all those kind of things. He said, the problem is most elders don't have one and two under them. Many of them are not living missionally personally. They've never even had a conversation with someone about Christ. Um, so if they're not living missionally, eh, maybe we ought to start there. And then making disciples. Again, taking people through a great commission process. Um, so he said, much of our session language gets caught up in mobilization and leading ministry. So three and four, most of our elders are stuck there, missing one and two, and not able to get to five, six, seven up, up the ladders. Um, but so the workbook is an amazing tool for um, session development. So, okay, so... And the book is called the Leadership Ladder. Yes. Yes, it's called the Leadership Ladder. Mm -hmm. I have to say, my my session, they really struggled with it. They they didn't like it, and then they got done about two months later. My most resistant, probably the brightest guy on the session that was really resisting at all, said, "You know, all of a sudden that stuff's starting to make sense." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not. So the workbook has assignments and stuff, and it's like not like, go home and think about this and then come back the next time. It's like, hey, we got to dig in here. Mm -hmm. um, and then some great questions on page 48 uh, about that. <clears throat> um, so p page 49. <laughs> uh, and you see the, the side rails, building biblical knowledge, building biblical character, just as ways of guiding and holding up the other... The other rungs. Okay, so phase four, aligning structure. You can see the key questions there. What are the criteria for decision-making, resource allocation? How does leadership function? Um, you see the definition that we have for structure there and what it means and what it looks like. Um, Acts 6 is a tremendous devotional study on the nature of uh, aligning structure. Um, and so, again, where do most of our elders live? Most of them live in administration and finance. In a boardroom. Management. Managing programs. Managing meetings. Managing budgets. Managing whatever, pick the category. They're, how to do spiritual CPR on a dead Yep, yep, there you go. So, um, and particularly, again, as a, um, one of the points I try to make here is that as a transitional pastor, don't let yourself get caught up in that stuff, okay? You can't do everything as a transitional pastor, right? You just can't. And so make sure you're putting your time and your energy. So um, I know, I don't know, basically what I say to churches is, you know, a transitional pastor is not going to come here to hold Aunt Matilda's hand, to visit everybody in their home, to spend all their time in the hospital. Those are all good things, but your elders, buck up and start acting like elders and do what you've been called to do. This person's coming to help lead mission and vision and values and, and ask the questions that are hard and ask the questions that are uncomfortable. So that's spiritual leadership and strategic resourcing. So helping the session to understand we're not here to do administration finance. You've done that lousy for years and years. You continue to do that. But what we're here to do is provide spiritual leadership, strategic resourcing to help you discover what it is God has called you to do. Okay? <clears throat> I know you're taking all this in. Um, 
Oh, okay. There we go. Page 51. Um, 50 is just a work page that you can use to keep track of some of that. So um, what you're really doing as a transitional pastor is you're transferring, um, you're transferring uh, authority from current leadership to a new vision. That's the big 30,000 foot view. And so see this revision, leaders of inclining churches tend to, to place authority in the vision that launched the most recent ah, season of incline. They will need to revision or transfer authority currently vested in that vision to a newly discerned vision. Reprogram, restructure, the vitalization principles at the bottom. The transfer of authority to vision is first a matter of changing the hearts and minds of structural leaders, i.e. elders, and not a matter of replacing them. Make sense? <laughs> Three thirty. Everything makes sense. <laughs> well, I think I was just going to comment that that's. I think that's the easy out for a lot of pastors. Is if I just had this idiot off the session, things would be better. But you're saying. There's a biblical passage that said, idiots we will have with us always, even to the end of the age. Um, yeah. No, and that's not even, again, particularly in a transitional role, um, that's not particularly helpful. That's just passing on the problem to the next thing, to the next uh, pastor. So our, our hope is that... Um, you know, you may be able to see, say, challenge some things in that, um, get them to understand vision. So, yes, absolutely. Well, do you think most, uh, or have you seen churches that um, kind of it's, when you think about current leadership to a new vision, do you think most churches are centered around the, the pastor or uh, a vision beyond the pastor? I guess it's going back to the kind of that pastor-oriented church, mm -hmm. but... I've seen that a lot, where you lose a pastor and it feels like you've learned, you've lost, like the whole narrative of the church is gone. Yeah. Um, sure, it depends on the situation, obviously, largely. Um, but, but for me, that's exactly the power of a transitional pastor. You're not leaving a vacuum there. You're stepping into a vacuum to present a new reality. Um, a new way of aligning yourself, a new way of thinking about the process. So that's the opportunity... Um, you know, say transitioning pastors giving churches not what they want but what they need. Um, and so it's hard for them to see it first until you get in and process that. But it depends on the kind of pastor, the, his own strength, leadership style, how did he leave, you know, all those elements. So, yeah. Okay, so five, last phase, five phase, phase five. Um, without a vision, the people will perish. Without the people, a vision will perish. Um, and so, you're rallying people around a, a God-given vision. Um, I might not have said this, but vision is not about... Creativity. It's always about... So, I don't want us to get confused here where vision comes from, okay? Uh, how will we get people involved? And I love this second question. On whom does the future depend? There are probably four people in any given church on whom the future depends. And when you think of it like that, it becomes a very fascinating experience. And so, some people ask, well, how do you, how do you determine who's on the vision team? Um, this is my first question. Who are the four people, five people, six people, on whom the future of this church depends? 
Who's going to take it somewhere? Um, and what does that look like? And who do we need? Um, again, it, that can be for positive or negative, obviously. Um, but on the positive side, who are the people that we need on this vision team? And then I've had tons and tons of people say, hey, I've been asked to be an elder of the church. Um, I can't do both. Should I be on the vision team or be an elder? What's my answer? Vision team. Every single time. Every single time. Uh, elders we will have with us always. There's another chance to do. But having the right people on that vision team is so important. And they'll say, we don't have time. I said, I can think of five things right now you could stop doing that wouldn't make a hill of beans a difference in order to do what could change this part of the kingdom of God. Um, and that's, that's how we want to present it to them. Um, so uh, the four dimensions of change, again, uh, the willingness to... I don't know what I got on here now. Oh, these are all the people as part of the Vitalization Process. Okay, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. But um, the willingness to change, the ability to change, the substance of change, and the pace of change. Those are four dynamics that transitional pastors have to think about. Okay? And then the people of Great Commission Vitalization, there's the people. Um, and again, I, I really like the little box that's in there. This is actually one I added. That's why I like it um, so much. Vitalization principle, make change a choice, not have to change because of crisis. Um, and, and get ahead of change. Okay? A uh, couple things to wrap up here, and we'll send you on your way. <clears throat> Four types of people. The first is what we call theorists. Theorists are your early adopters. Another way to, to put that. These are the people who can see things that aren't there yet, who can look into the future and dream, who can picture things um, and God-given things that are out there yet to come. Now, where do we want these people? On the vision, On the vision team. Yes, right, exactly. So they are the, the, the people that can drive something that is not yet there and understand it and see it and allow God to speak to them. Uh, the second group of people, I'll do, just kind of outline them and then we'll go. Uh, the, prag the realists. What does a realist sound like? It sounds something like this. If you show me something that makes sense, then I'm in. But they have to see something first. They have to see something that makes sense. In other words, you're not a crazy person. And this is where they lose me because I'm a one, right? Um, well, I really can't show you anything, and I can't even figure out how this is all going to work, but I, I see it. I feel it. I know this is where God is. So realists are like, you know, I, I can sort of get that, but I have to have some reason to buy into this process. Okay? <clears throat> What's a pragmatist? If it works, I'm in. Does it work? That's it. Yeah, that's it. When you show me, pardon me? Can we afford it? <laughs> <laughs> when you show me that it works and you've proven it's effective, then I'm in. Well, by then we don't need you, knucklehead. And I don't say that. But, um, but that's, that's what it takes. And then there's the preservationists. What are they? Never end. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. I'm holding on to the present or even the past, and I'll never be in here. The point here is... Never wait for consensus. Don't wait until 
you know, I've heard churches say, well, we really can't uh, get this vision moving until three quarters of the church is in on it, or half, or whatever number they make up. And I'd say, stop. You're done. You're toast. Never going to happen. You, you'll get some of the theorists, but nobody else is going to want to be a part of it. Um, start with who you have and go. And here's how you want to use your people. Uh, that are involved in the process. High visibility. It means you ought to have your vision team as often as you can get them up in front of the church. Communicating over and over again what God's doing. And as God begins to work, let them tell stories. Even if they're not all the way to where you're going, let them tell the rest of the congregation what God is doing. And that's the part of repeated communication. Again, remember the PTSD thing we did about a year ago in the board? On the board? P what was one of the PTSD things? Yeah, yeah, auditory exclusion, right? So you can't over-communicate in a transition period. You cannot over I don't care. How, I don't care if you just have everybody for a week sit in the pews and you say the same thing for a week. It won't matter. They'll still say, nobody ever told me that before, right? And here's the last thing. No ultimatums. Don't put people in a place where they have to choose a side, um, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. So I've, our, Ken and I always have this uh, mantra. Um, um, people ask us, well, you know, we're going to have a town hall meeting. And our response is always, there is no good town hall meeting. Nothing good happens in town hall meetings. You're giving the mic to crazy people who are not on board with who you are, and you're giving them a chance to influence others. So how do you affect change then? How do you do it? By building your session. By building one by one by one by one by one. Small groups. Let them ask questions. Let them explore. If they're opposed, that's okay. They're going to oppose in a very small setting. Um, and so, um, again, I can't tell you the number of... I'm always invited to town hall meetings. And I'm always tempted to say no, and yet something sadistic in me draws me there. Um, so, yeah. Yes? To publish that reality often shows people that their opinion is in the minority, not in the majority, and therefore easier to influence in. So you're saying they're a good thing? Yeah. Yeah, if, if there's, at, well, as you're communicating, if, um, if your movement is, is happening, to be able to just communicate that to people, you know, who's, who's signed on to this or how many people have signed on to this, um, you know, usually it's a squeaky wheel that gets the most grease. And for people to realize they're the squeaky wheel, that that often helps them. I, I think there's ways to communicate that yeah. other than giving them a mic. Oh, I totally. Agree. <laughs> I totally agree. So yeah, no, I understand I what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So you know, a lawyer never puts anybody on the stand that they don't know what the answer is. Mm. Nobody gets a mic if I don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. um, lots of people will get the mic if I know what the answer is, mm -hmm. um, and that over time is a persuasive factor. Again. I just see these go south all the time. And the last one I was at, actually, I thought, you know, this might have a chance. It didn't have a chance. It was, it was awful. So one person, one person took the room. One person took the room. That's the risk that you run. 
And that's not a risk. I'm not going to sacrifice. And they're always the naysayer. Well. The bully yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, the, it's, it's a power play. And it's almost always the person with the most money. Mm -hmm. And the threat is. I'm leaving. Overtly or not so overtly. If I don't get my way, you got issues. Right? That's not going to happen on my watch. Um, I will have a personal conversation about that. Hey, you go, you go. This is God's thing. It's not my thing. You know, God's moving. He's on mission. You can't get on board. Bye. Um, that's all right. So, anyway. But, no town hall meeting, or is well, again, you just don't want to put people in a position where they have to choose a side. You want to communicate as much as you can in ways that you're explaining, encouraging, bringing health, bringing healing, listening to the concerns, hearing the conflict. The vast majority of the time, somebody just needs to say something to get it off their chest. Well, great. Say it to me, because I don't care what you think. Um, <laughs> Actually, I really don't. But anyway, um, you know, it's not about that. I'll listen to those concerns. I'll hear them out. Um, but there's a bigger picture at stake here that we've got to be really careful of. That's, that's the point. Okay, so private alignment of people, you see it there. Conversation, not presentation. Answer questions, remove obstacles, give opportunities for commitment. Um, divide and serve in the way God's called you to serve. Okay, so let's... let's um, well, oh, I had a thing there. All this is, okay, this is a kind of a simple idea, and then I'll finish with one other thing. Um, see milestone number one, uh, theorists commit. Some of those theorists are from the congregation. Some of those theorists are from the community, right, that you've been called to serve. As you begin to serve them, as you begin to build relationships, as you begin to share the gospel, people from the community will come on board. And so, um, some come from congregation. That's the vision. Some come from community. the community. I can't see what that is. Okay. Second part along the line of vision is you'll have some realists commit. Again, some from the congregation, some from the community. Eventually, Pragmatists commit, some from the community, some from the congregation. But you see the slow build. It's not a start with consensus. It's a start with who you have, people who are going to join on by nature. And as you move toward the future vision, people from the community and people from the congregation will come, come on board. Um, and again, part of the process here, again, that we're working on developing and, and seeing what it will look like is uh, the power of coaching. Um, so as we do transitional pastors, we want to have people to coach folks and um, have a couple of these transitions under their belt to do it and understand the process. And the last thing that I will end with, <clears throat> page something, 57. Elements of a, of a healthy search process. Um, again, here's my overall perspective on search teams. If you do the right work up front, the process will be both more effective and time efficient. Um, if you don't, then the process will be inefficient and long. So what does a search team need to, to do? Understand the past. So a good sense of your church's history, and I think we put some things in the appendix to help. Understanding the present, and by the present, what we mean is who are we, where have we been called to go, you know, the stuff we spent all day talking about. 
Uh, and then understanding the future. What's our focus outreach? Who are we trying to reach? Good sense of your vision and strategy. How are we going to reach them? Having a clear picture of the pastor needed to lead. So I tell search teams, uh, you need to have all of this part one in place before you look at one single PIF. And if you take out and start looking at PIFs anytime before that, we will take your firstborn. Maybe that's a bit strong, but... Um, don't look at, because profiles just tend to confuse people. Um, and so forming that profile, a clear vision of what the person looks like that God would call to lead you in the process you've spent all this time working to create. Okay? Uh, a couple of things to do. Um, so packet of information about the community, blah, 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 church history. These are things that a transitional pastor would look for. Um, you see partway down there, website development. It's, it's always... You, you want some entertainment someday. You're really bored. I haven't been bored in a while, but last time I was bored, I started looking through church websites. Oh, as my granddaughter would say, oh, my holy goodness. And she's two, right? That, that's, her, that's her favorite phrase. Some, she, oh my. I look at these websites like, are you kidding me? Do you know that today in the United States, uh, the first place a person will go uh, and when checking out a church is their website. 85% of people go to a website first. And they will make a determination of whether they come to your church based on your website. Just your front page. Yeah, 85% of people. And it might be higher than that now. That's relatively old statistic. Um, so these are the things Bill likes to talk about. You can talk to him about it. But, um, again, uh, creating... An, and, and where's the first place a potential pastor is going to go? Uh, to your website. And his or her decision on whether to move forward will probably be significantly impacted by what they see on your website. Um, I couldn't form a website if you gave me the rest of my life to do it. Um, no, I still couldn't do it the rest of my life. So, um, but there are... You'd have to get a computer first. Dang. I knew there was something holding me back. But... Um, there are lots of people, groups, organizations doing good website stuff, um, creative, interactive, all that fun stuff. See Bill, that's under that. Um, EPC Church Profile and Opportunities uh, write-ups. Um, again, you want some entertainment, go to the opportunities list and look at the way some churches advertise their position. And we, I spent, I've done, I don't know, I tried to figure out the other day, I, I've probably been a part of helping or coaching maybe 300 search teams now. And, and so one of the things we do is we go to the opportunities list and say, so what does, this, what does that write-up suggest to you? It is hilarious. Like, really, what could you possibly be thinking to put that in there? Um, so anyway, lots of things to think of. Opportunities, budget, financial statements, all the things that you, know, you need to think of. Uh, on page 58, um, search profiles. Um, and by that, I mean, what, what I, if you remember a long time ago, that uniquely you thing that I talked about for self-assessment, um, we do, uh, we give that to all search team members because what they often don't take into account is how different they are from each other. Um, so churches will say, we have a wide variety of people on our search team. And why do they say that? Someone's young, someone's old, we have men, we have women, all that kind of stuff. You know the interesting thing? When, you, when they do a disc profile, they're almost all exactly the same. Mm. They think the same way. They, so 
Uh, often on search teams, um, this might not necessarily mean anything to you, but it's, uh, it's called a disk profile. Many search teams are made up of high D, entrepreneurial, visionary kind of thinking. And they think, everybody thinks like they think, right? I know, because I am one, right? And so um, what happens um, when there's, um, let's, let's say, for example, we have five high Ds on a search team and a high C walks into the room. You know what their immediate response is? They don't like I don't think we like that guy. Why don't they like him? Or her? Because he's not like us. I mean, that's easy. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's not about being the right person or the right gifts or the right anything, but having them both understand the dynamics of a group that that causes and the way they function together and then how it impacts who they have come in. So develop a pastor profile. Calling, context, character, comps. What, what are the things, given who we are and where we're going, that God would have us do? Then engaging a candidate. What questions might a candidate ask you? And in your appendix, there's a whole list of them. What questions will you ask every candidate at each level of interviewing? Will you rate or score each candidate objectively? What tools will you use to do this? Um, it's always amazing to me. I see churches bring in candidates, and it's like, eh, uh, and after about four, you can't remember one from the other from the other, but they have no objective way to look at what they're doing as it lines up against a profile of what they're supposed to be looking for. Um, so anyway, I am, I am the uh, bane of existence for search teams. Um, but once they put the things in place that need to be in place, then the process goes quickly because they get PIFs, and here's I, I've sat in hundreds of rooms where this happens. So you get a pile of PIFs, whatever that PIF thing. They pick one up. Nope. Nope. Maybe. Nope. Nope. Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're looking, it's up against something that's concrete and makes sense to them. Um, so helping churches think through, the, um, through that whole thing. Let me do a... Uh, Quick video he here. Uh, you know what? I'll skip this one. I'm going to go to the last one. Understand the path. So he, I like this. This is, this is so great. Can you see this advertisement? This little cartoon. They're all going up the same direction. At the end, he's on a different peak than they're on. So anyway, I'm humored easily. So. They do that on purpose in Sunday. How come I'm not going? I think you have to point at the computer, don't you? Uh, I wasn't before. I wonder if my batteries did. Okay, let me do this last one. I'll give you a chance. I'll do this and we'll take a few minutes to discuss it, let you ask whatever questions you have, and. We'll get you home to mom. Yeah, I think the church vitality process has had impact inside the walls of Covenant Church, mostly by virtue of just enthusiasm and excitement. Um, uh, there's life in, it's my brother. in these walls with regard to purpose and intentionality of why we do ministry. An example of that for us right now is rethinking um, our small group system and, and uh, 
why we do small groups and how are they great commission small groups and uh, how do we intentionally build them in, in order to have service and mission as a part of them uh, so that as we make connections outside our walls that our small group system is an intentional part of that and so as people come to covenant as they're engaged by virtue of our community outreach how are we assimilating them into the life of the church by virtue from the large group meeting on a Sunday morning to small groups where they find relationships and even at times finding relationships in those small groups before they even come to the large group uh, and being able to uh, find ways internally to reach externally uh, for the sake of the gospel if you're watching this video today and you are in a transitional period I want to encourage you to engage a transitional pastor. It will bring stability, and it will also facilitate the bringing of change that works with your new vision. If you're a church that is considering having a transitional pastor, please consider it well and hard and then do it. Uh, I think that this is one of the best things that we have done, uh, that it has helped us to know ourselves, it's helped us to know our community, it's helped us to know the Lord better, to rely harder and closer and walk closer with the Lord. Uh, this has been probably one of the best uh, experiences that I have had uh, going through different churches and, and different uh, times of getting a new pastor. It has taken a lot of the, the angst out that, that, that we know that we're doing and giving our best and not settling, but knowing that God is going to lead us in doing the right thing. And I, please, please, uh, go find someone that can help you with this situation, that can help you uh, with the transitional pastor. I just wish that everybody could do this. And uh, if you want to uh, know anything else about it, give me a call. Well, I'm constantly reminded that, that God is incredibly faithful in the midst of process like this and 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 so even when you're struggling with change even when you hit a, a speed bump and and you're navigating a difficult process whether it's it's departure of staff or adjustment of staff in, in terms of their roles and responsibilities you see these little glimpses of God at work in all of it and, and it's exciting and it's hopeful and it helps the congregation stay hopeful well, I uh, had an opportunity to go to the last General Assembly and, uh, uh, and talk to a number of churches that were going through a pastoral search process. And as I listened to, in fact, in several cases, there were people that were serving on their pastoral search committee. And I was uh, surprised how many of them were kind of like we were, uh, or maybe even having additional struggles. The, the church had not decided what it wanted to be when it grew up, so they had absolutely no idea about uh, what they were looking for in the way of a pastor and there were just tremendous tensions within their even within their search committee and i started talking to them about what i saw as the values of having a uh, a transitional pastor uh, somebody who's going to take you through that process takes away the the tension and the and the urgency of immediately trying to find somebody just to fill that that pastor's job and you can step back and take a look at yourself examine yourself and examine your opportunities in your community and, and where God might be calling you to to work and then help you find that right person and uh, unanimously when I talked to these people they they said but we don't have that resource available to us 
but we would sure like to have it. I, I just encourage you, as I said, before we started it, we were reluctant to even go down that path. We were going to go the traditional path. I know for a fact that we would not be where we are in, the, in being comfortable in the process of finding a new pastor and feeling comfortable as a church of, of being, of understanding who we are as a church and, uh, and a better understanding of where the opportunities, we're going to be able to present that to a pastor coming in. Uh, here's, here's where our church is going, not like where do you want us to go, here's where we're going. We want somebody that, that is not going to say, I'm going to take you somewhere, going to say, yeah, I'm on board with you, I'm going to help you get there. And I think that's going to be really helpful for us and for that pastor. Why don't you just take, uh, let's take like 10 minutes, just get in your groups, kind of process the whole thing. And uh, we'll have Bill pray for us at the end and send you out. <clears throat> Any questions first? Anything? Just talk about the, the role of coach hmm. in this process. We're, we're, what strategic points? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're we're working on the, uh, as I mentioned before, we're working on the supply of coaches and what that looks like. Um, but basically, uh, a coach just functions at the place you're stuck, um, and kind of a pullback, a reminder, uh, where are you in the process? Because you can kind of get in and lose track of where you're swimming if. Uh, get overwhelmed by that process. Um, so it's just somebody to come alongside and offer help. So again, we hope that our presbytery has the group of folks that meet. Dan's a part of that uh, group and encourage each other and pray for each other and training and ask questions. Would love every presbytery to get to a place where that's something happening in your presbytery. But here's the deal. You got to help us get into your presbytery. <laughs> um, so any way we can uh, talk about this or advance the cause, we'd love to be able to do that. So.